What time do you set your alarm for in the morning? I would say I set an alarm at 6, 630, 645, 7, 715. Dude, what? And 7.30. Every day? Every single day. Do what you about you? I'm the kind of person who gets up at their first alarm? My alarm goes off at 4.30 a.m. <gasps> I hit snooze and I don't get out of bed till 4.45. You stop. I know. If it's not a gym morning and I'm just coming to work as normal, my alarm goes off at 6, but I don't get up until 6.30. I know. Dear listener, he's looking at me like I'm crazy. got for us today so my piece is once again we're in region land up north in Indi- northern indiana love region land we've been living there lately it's um, a i mean it's a nice place to live yeah so this piece is about ann baxter have you ever heard or do you know about ann baxter i have never heard of ann baxter no well neither had i until i read this article and ann is a famous actress who's from indiana specifically michigan City, is where she spent some years of her life and so this piece is called all about ann the acting career of ann baxter It was written by David L. Smith and published in the Fall 2003, Volume 15, Number 4, Issue of Traces. Smith opens his article by describing the life of a young girl who was from Michigan City and who received, quote, an extraordinary gift when one of the world's greatest architects built a theater for her to use. So you're wondering, who is this little girl and who is this famous architect? Well, it's Anne. Ann Baxter's grandfather is none other than Frank Lloyd Wright, who is a very well-known architect. Architect, right? yeah. Like, I feel like even if you're not into architecture, you know who Frank Lloyd Wright is. But very famous from the Midwest. Yes, in particular, yeah. Her relationship with her grandfather is one that is important to her and will continue to be important to her beyond this big gesture, right? But we'll sort of get into that a little bit later. Anne's mother, her name was Catherine Wright Baxter, and she was the daughter of Frank Lloyd Wright. So that's how Anne is related to the famous architect. Anne's father's name is Kenneth Stewart Baxter. Anne's parents married on March 11th, 1919. Shortly after their marriage, the couple moved to Michigan City. And in 1920, Catherine gave birth to her first child, James Stewart Baxter. Unfortunately, though, he did die just five months later in his crib. That is tragic. This story is tragic, starts out really tragic for Anne's family. Luckily, I don't think the story continues to be sad. Three years later, in May 1923, Anne was born. And when Anne was three years old, her father actually built their family house in Michigan City that they moved into. Approximately three years later, so when Anne was about six, her dad took a job in New York, and that's where the family relocated. Anne's parents then, in 1933 in New York, had another child whose name was Richard Tobin or Toby Baxter, but he too died not shortly after his third birthday. This poor family. No. And luckily, I mean, if there is a bright side to this, Anne was young. I don't know. I almost feel like yeah. it's worse to lose a sibling when you're so young. I, mean, I couldn't I, imagine losing a sibling. I, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine either. I can't 
I can't imagine losing someone you were growing up with because yeah. was Anne the oldest? So Anne would technically have been the middle child. Well, and that's even worse too because she got to know. Well, she never know, knew well, her she older brother. Knew he one, died yeah. just five months after he was born. So in around June 1920 and she was born in May 1923. So she knew the memory of her oldest brother, but she really didn't, I mean, know physically and emotionally her younger brother, Toby. So as you probably noticed, Anne moved away from Michigan City when she was six, and she was really only a Hoosier for those few years of her life. But she does credit her upbringing in the Hoosier state as a pivotal reason in why she got some of the roles that she was later cast in. Specifically, she says that her Hoosier upbringing was the primary reason that she was chosen for her Oscar-winning role in The Razor's Edge, and she played Sophie in that movie. Anne goes on to say she was, quote, raised right, and that her success is in part due to her parents instilling in her this desire to work hard and to meet the best of her abilities and to not accept, quote, the cushion of her birth, right? I would interpret that as meaning her grandfather's name, right? And money, maybe? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure how uh, well-known he would have been in, like, Hollywood, though, because I I don't foresee a ton of crossover between architecture and acting or architecture and Hollywood. Like, that doesn't seem like it would mix well to me i don't i don't know that's a good point i also though wonder maybe he was building homes for hollywood rich and famous right maybe there's some overlap there or maybe she just meant like the money right like yeah at at that point Frank Lloyd Wright was the top tier of architecture. He was making money and he had this name that had recognition. So maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, I mean, her family was comfortable too. This article doesn't elaborate on what that meant. Anne does say that her parents used, I think, some principles that you could associate with being born and growing up in the Midwest and specifically in Indiana to instill this work ethic in her that she later credits for a lot of her success. Anne's acting began literally from her childhood. She was interested in acting and was literally acting from a young age. She was in some school plays in Michigan City when she was just about five years old. And she did continue to make elementary play productions in New York after she moved. At the age of 10, Anne saw an actress called Helen Hayes perform. And this uh, production helped her decide that this was exactly what she wanted to do for her career. Anne said of this moment later in her life, quote, I wanted to be an actress because that was the thing I was best at. I knew I could do it. There are very few things in life that we know we can do. And I think maybe that's a little true. There are things in our lives that we know we're good at. And to do them is, is to have enjoyment in them, right? So at the age of 10, Anne knew that this is what she wanted to do. And her mother encouraged her and helped her achieve this goal. But her mom also did say, quote, if you want to be an actor, you must stick to it. You must be good at it and you must make your living at it. Commit to it, work hard and be successful. That was really Anne's only option. So I would say her mother was supportive but stern, which I, I would mean, is a, probably a good quality in Hollywood. Well, it's probably good quality in Hollywood, but it's also probably a very good quality of a parent who might be like, I don't love this as your option. I don't love this as your choice. But like, if it's going to be your choice, I'm supporting you. We're going to we're going to do it. Yes. That's sort of the vibe I got. Or maybe her mom wasn't thrilled, but she wasn't going to tell Anne no if that's what made Anne happy. Her mother wasted no time after this getting Anne into acting and like really getting her out into the world. And at the age of 11, she began commuting from her family home in Long Island to New York City to attend a variety of schools to study the dramatic arts. 
Anne made her Broadway debut around 1935 at the Henry Miller Theater as Elizabeth Winthrop in Seen But Not Heard. And this role led her to being invited to study with the acting teacher and actress Maria Spenskaya. Maria Spenskaya had this specific style of teaching. It was called the Stanislavski Method. Are you familiar with this method? I am familiar with the Stanislavski Method. Can you tell the listeners what it is? If I'm remembering correctly, the Stanislavski Method of acting is all about background. Is like you're building the background of your character fully. Like you know what their history is, you know how they feel about every little thing they've ever done. And the idea is that by building this background and backstory of a character, you're able to act what is on the page. Yeah, that's basically what I what Google told me that this training method was really made up of various techniques that were meant to really encompass a person in a role. You were working on your imagination, your communication, your emotional memory, you were trying to relax as this character. It was really an all-encompassing role. But this was a really big deal for Anne because this teacher really put her on the map. To be taught by Maria was to be taken a little more seriously. I mean, this was like the person who really could get you places like this is the person who could make you go somewhere i think so or at least having her name under your belt was a sign of like i was good enough for maria give me a shot kind of yeah she was a trusted name in the business and spent the next several years of her life both in boston in new york and in a town called dennis massachusetts and she was acting all this time she was to play a role in the philadelphia story alongside katherine hepburn but hepburn accused baxter of quote hamming it up and other acting missteps it's unclear to me Some drama yes. drama on the set it's unclear to me from the article whether or not Anne continued this role but it seems like maybe she didn't and this isn't the first time we'll hear about Anne getting criticism from other actresses she didn't let the disappointment of Katherine Hepburn's thoughts of her keep her down for long. She then decided she wanted to go to Hollywood and she was ready to move out west. At the age of 14, so we're in 1937, she took her first screen test with a gentleman named David O. Selznick for the film Tom Sawyer. And she would have played opposite Montgomery Clift, who wow. is a pretty well-known name in the time. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, this role didn't happen for Anne, but she did get a few more tests out of this. Her test for this film was impressive to other folks, although a lot of them didn't amount to much. There was one test, though, that caught the attention of Daryl Zanuck, who offered Baxter the standard seven-year contract with 20th Century Fox at about $350 a week. This was in the time of film creation, wherein a person were contracted to a production company, right? You Yeah, so a- you signed a contract for, like, I'm going to do five movies with you, yeah. and that's what I'm signing up to do. Yeah. She wasn't able to move around. She got signed with 20th Century Fox until Zanuck just discovered that Anne was actually underage. At this point, she would have been about 16 or 17. And when he realized this, he tried to go back on their contract. But Anne was like, heck no, she did not let that happen. And so the contract remained. I think maybe Zanuck went around. He was like, okay, you can stay, but we're going to lend you out to some other production firms. So he lent her to MGM, where she actually made her first film debut in the film 20 Mule Team, which was released in 1940. Her co-star in this role also accused her of, quote, overacting. So I don't know if it's like early Hollywood jitters or 
you know, being around Catherine Hepburn might make you feel a little nervous, but she was being accused of acting. Which is wild, because have you seen, like, she must have been doing some wild and crazy things, because have you seen movies from that era? They were very animated and over the top. Yeah. But that's how they communicated, I feel like, emotions and ideas, right? Like, you had to be... Yeah, over a bit over the top, at least. So I I wonder what, was she doing literal backflips? Like, what know. was happening? I wish Smith would have elaborated on these things, but... Sure. So she was accused of overacting in her role. She did keep the role, however, and did manage to tone down her, quote, overacting. And she did well enough in this role that her home studio with Zanuck cast her in their next film, The Great Profile, the same year, 1940. Now, mind you, Anne is still in high school at this point. She is enrolled in 20th Century Fox's studio school. And after a little while there, she then enrolls in Los Angeles High School, where she graduates in 1941. And by the time she'd graduated high school, she had appeared in four films. Imagine doing high school and then imagine also being an actress on top of that. I simply cannot, no. but there's a whole industry of child actors who probably can. Who probably empathize <laughs> a lot with what Anne was doing. Yeah. Anne was going out and getting her dreams and working hard like her mom asked. The next year, in 1942, Anne was cast in one of her best roles today. She was cast as Lucy Morgan in Orson Welles' adaption of Booth Tarkington's, who's also a Hoosier, Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Magnificent Ambersons. Anne says the rough cut of this film was, quote, an utter masterpiece, but unfortunately the critics really didn't care for the film. And Anne credits that to the film being overcut and lots of good pieces being left on the, what do they say, the cutting room floor? Yes. That. <laughs> Anne's grandfather actually came to see her on the set of Magnificent Ambersons, and he was not impressed. He thought the cast was okay. He thought the scene was just kind of dirty and the stage was run down and blah, blah, blah. I don't think Anne let this get to her, though, obviously, because she thought highly of the role and she thought highly of her job in the role. So maybe her grandfather was just being a little judgy. Also, what does he know about acting? He's an architect. Yeah. uh, Nothing? Question mark? Who knows? Maybe he was an actor on the side. I guess we'll never know. I think maybe he was also just really protective of her. Yeah, that's fair. You want you you want your your family to be doing things you think are good in places you think are reputable. Yeah, true. In 1944, Anne starred in Guest in the House and also Sunday Dinner for a Soldier. And during these filmings, a romance blossomed between her and her co-star John Hodiak, and they were married July 7th, 1946. This was after she graduated high school, right? She graduated in 1941. Okay. So yes, she had her first child, a daughter named Catherine, who was born July 9th, 1951. Baxter said of her parenting style, quote, I'm going to bring up a strong character, let her make her own decisions in life. We hope we can provide the background for a happy, healthy, well-adjusted little girl. She said, I'm going to Stanislavski method this child. I'm going to make a strong character. (laughs) I think she um, maybe was using a little bit of her mother's idea her mother's stern but supportive of make a decision i'll support you in that decision but But we gotta work so sidebar we're gonna go ahead in time and then come back in 1953 her marriage to john ended and unfortunately two years later so roughly 1955 he did die of a heart attack there's that that seems very sudden yeah i don't know how old he was or anything but poor catherine In 1945, Frank Lloyd Wright came to visit his granddaughter, Anne, again, on the set of A Royal Scandal, where he said of Anne's co-star, Tallulah Bankhead, quote, not bad for an old dame. And apparently this really ticked off Tallulah, 
Now this is all hearsay. I don't know whose version of events this is, but Tallulah heard Frank Lloyd Wright say this. And in a scene where her and Anne were working together, Tallulah was um, tasked with like tapping Anne lightly on the shoulder. Anne says, quote, she responded with an uppercut that sent me reeling. There was security. <laughs> Part of me is like her relationship with her grandfather is one that's important to her, but I'm also like maybe you don't have maybe him on he's set causing anymore. you some trouble at work. Yeah, maybe yeah. you don't have him on set. After this, Anne was cast as Sophie in A Razor's Edge. And this is the role that she said her Hoosier upbringing really helped her get. She was originally dismissed for the part, but then she won over the casting director because her background was really similar to the character. The character was a Midwestern girl who was used to attending country club dances. And Anne Hmm. felt that was her. This cast was star-studded by the standards of the time. Jean Tierney... Herbert Marshall and Hoosier Clifton Webb were all in the film. And this film marks the only time that two Hoosiers were actually both nominated for Best Supporting Oscars in the same film. Anne won. Drama. Sorry, Clifton. I'm rooting for Anne. In 1950, Anne starred opposite Betty Davis in All About Eve, which Anne says was the high point in her career. She described her role in this film as, quote, I was good. I was respected. I had a great part. The script was superb. The actors were perfect and perfectly cast, even me, and I wasn't always. Both Anne and Betty received a nomination for Best Actresses, but unfortunately neither of them won. In 1959, Anne was in Australia on location for a film Summer of the 17th Doll, which was then later retitled Season of Passion, when friends tried to set her up with this local rancher named Randolph Galt. Unfortunately, the two never did meet each other. He was in the Philippines at the time, I guess. Sure. Yeah, as one is. Anne quickly forgot about Randolph and moved along. That was until April 19th, 1959, when she was awoken at 3 a.m. with a phone call from her mother telling her that her grandfather had died. She, like I said, had a really nice relationship with her grandfather. It was very close. And Smith, the author of this article, goes on to say that Anne's relationship was a closer relationship than Anne's mother had with her own father. There was some tension between Anne's mother and grandfather. Yeah, I could see that happening. Like, I feel like a lot of people have sometimes tenuous relationships with their parents, but then with their grandparents, they can be a lot closer because there's less of a I'm raising this person responsibility and more of a I can just have fun doing fun things with this person. Uh, Smith does go on to say that Catherine Wright Baxter, Anne's mom, just never forgave her father for leaving her mother. And I can understand her feelings there. Yeah. According to Smith, Anne and her grandfather had this mutual fame that made them closer. And to her grandfather, nothing was better than to see one of his grandchildren be famous. He said, he said, I can't be the only one in this family. I can't be the only one. There's no one else who will understand all the things. I can't do this all myself. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. It's a little weird. I don't know if it's pride. I don't know if it's gloating. I don't know what it is. But I don't know if I like it. (laughs) I literally wrote, IDK if I like this, three question marks. As she was leaving her grandfather's memorial service, she gets a call from none other than Mr. Galt from Australia. She said, quote, grandfather's death had brought a stranger from another world into mine. And then that began their romance. I don't think I like that. My note. Um, this, this random weird. this random man says, "Oh, her grandfather died. Perfect timing." Slide in the DMs, yeah. Yeah, let's let's start up something. You know, I think probably it was a phone call saying, "I'm so sorry. I hope you're doing well." Blah blah blah. That somehow morphed into, "You want to go out on a date?" Questionable choice, but I've, evidently it won over Anne. To each their own. To each their own. The next year, Anne and Ranny, as what she called Randolph, were married in Honolulu, Hawaii, which was his birthplace. Their daughter, Melissa, was born October 5th, 1961. After Melissa's birth, the whole family, including 
Catherine, Anne's first daughter, all moved to Australia. After Melissa's birth, the whole family, Anne, Ranny, Melissa, and Catherine, moved to Australia. Anne's first years of marriage were spent on a 36,000-acre ranch. This ranch was 150 miles north of Sydney and 10 miles from the closest neighbor. Understandably, Anne was really lonely. She did not like living there, and life was hard. I could believe that. I don't think I would enjoy moving halfway across the world knowing no one, and then also... Not, not getting to meet anyone. Not getting to know anyone. Yeah. And really tried to make the best of this situation, but just found the ruralness of her new home just to be too much. She then became pregnant with her second child with Ranny. The couple decided to have the baby in the U.S. So the family moved to California, and Anne's youngest daughter, Maginal, was born March 11th, 1963. After the birth of their daughter, Ranny bought a 11,000-acre ranch near Grant, New Mexico, and had Anne's cousin, whose name is Eric Lloyd Wright, he was also an architect. He had Eric design... Runs a, in the family. Anne's cousin, Eric Lloyd Wright, designed a 3,000-square-foot adobe home for the family. That's so very I know you're thinking, we're just giving up Australia, the continent, for the desert in the U.S., right? How much more happy could Anne be? I don't think she was that much more happy because in 1967, it was obvious to Anne that her marriage with Randy was not working and they separated and Anne moved with her daughters to Hollywood. Shocking that the marriage that started with a phone call after her grandfather died didn't last. You're very critical of Randy. I am. You're unimpressed. Sometimes in these uh, stories that we've been recording, the men have not done a lot to impress No, they haven't. (laughs) They have not. No. The supporting main characters or the love interests. I'm like, ladies, we could do better. Alas. Truly, I think we could have done done better here. And we did not. Anne left him, so. Well, good for her. She must have realized that he was just not it. Sorry to any surviving relatives of Randy. Yeah, let's just say that now. We're sorry. We don't mean it. We only know what this article tells us. In 1970, Anne and Randy officially divorced. In the same year, Anne starred in a Broadway musical version of her film All About Eve that was called Applause. Why not just keep it All About Eve? I don't know. Ask ask Broadway. I don't know. Ask, ask, hey, Broadway. (laughs) Why not just Operator, give me Broadway. 411. (laughs) Ask Jeeves. Text him. What's the number to Broadway? How do I ask Broadway this question? This role was a hit, and she remained in it until 1972. Her co-star in this production had this to say of Anne, quote, Anne was an actress and then a movie star. Anne's acting and not her charisma is what defined her performance. And this was a compliment to Anne. Anne put in the work, and she was an actress. She didn't get the job because she was super charismatic or she could turn on, you know, the charm. Although I'm sure she could. Wow, way to to give her all the compliments. I'm sure she could do all of that, but above all, she was a talented actress. Sure. And I think that was what's important. In 74, Anne went back to Broadway and starred in Come Into the Garden and also Song at Twilight. In 1975, in an interview with Chicago Daily News, Anne was asked how she managed to have a successful career and family. Anne said, quote, anyone who says she has is lying. When you are working, you feel guilty about the family. When you stop working to care for them, you feel guilty about your vocation. I think that in order to be happy, one has to realize that you probably won't have the very best of both. You have to settle for a little less than you would if you did only one of those things. You can't have it all. I mean, I think that is a very good way to look at it. I think if nothing else, Anne was very pragmatic. I think maybe this is her mother again saying, you can do it, but like work hard at it. Yeah, she she knew. She was like, I mean, I do have it all, but like I don't fully have everything at an equal level. Yes. 
And that's and it seemed that she was okay with that. Yeah, it's about balance. Right. Everything's about balance. Right. Anne tried to keep her children's lives as normal as possible. On January 30th, 1977, Anne then married Wall Street banker David Klee, and then he died 10 months later. The best kind of marriage. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> she said investment banker. Done and done. Done and done. And dead. Okay, moving on. In 1983, Anne starred in Hotel, which was a television series. And this is after Betty Davis had dropped out due to illness. So, Her and Betty Davis just yeah. together again and again. Well, not really. Betty well, was sick. Poor Betty. In 1985, specifically on December 4th, Anne collapsed. She was on her way to her hair appointment when she suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. She then died eight days later without regaining any consciousness. And she was only 62. Well, she was a workhorse, so... She worked hard. She worked a lot. I think she loved a lot, though. Yeah. She, she had a lot to love. You live, you learn. And I wanted to share with you a quote or two from a few of her co-stars and peers about her death. Her co-star on the Hotel series, whose name was Connie Selica, said, quote, I adored her and I loved working with her. Her death is a great loss to me personally and a tremendous loss for the show. Charlton Heston noted that the world had, quote, lost a remarkable actress and a significant star. Anne was a stimulating actress to work with and a fine woman as well. I will miss her. Well, it sounds like she was very well respected yeah. in the field and in the industry and like people liked her and yeah. she had gained a pretty substantial career yeah. by the time she had passed. So. I agree. I mean, but a, a substantial career, but also one that people probably don't know a lot about. I never heard of Anne. Yeah. And so to read this article and to learn about this woman who was pretty prolific in yeah. her work, I was shocked. So I wanted to end my article out on an Indiana note, as does Smith. That's how he ends his piece. So he does say that Anne returned to Indiana at least twice in her life, one time in 1946 to visit some family friends, and then another time in 1982. She was there for a fundraiser for the uh, Frank Lloyd Wright home in Chicago, and so she drove over to Michigan City, and she saw many of her childhood haunts, and she said to her friend, quote, oh, you can't go home again. And that's Anne. I have a question for you. Anne's thoughts about, oh, you can't go home again. <laughs> what do you think Anne meant by that? I think that we as human beings have an image of the places we've lived, where we've grown up, and when we move away from those places, we expect them to be preserved in the way that we remember them. And I think what Anne says, you can never go home again, I think she means that when you do return to those places, the nature of anywhere is it's going to change. Yeah, home is not just a place, but a feeling, a group of people, a home in its Itself. And like, I think we can all relate, even if it's somewhere you like traveled to in your past, you have a lot of memories surrounding that place. When you come back again to visit and you want to recreate those those feelings, those memories, I think it's easy to be disappointed if it's yeah. changed. Yeah. So I did sense some disappointment in that. I was curious what your thoughts on it too. I mean, I also think there's room for growth and yeah. joy in the ever-changing yeah. environment. But yeah, from what Anne said, that felt sad. I was glad that Smith ended his piece like that. And like we said, was a Hoosier only for a few short years of her life. And so to know that she went back, at least as a reader, gave you some closure to the piece yeah. and to Anne's life. All about Anne. All about Anne. Dude. Okay, so this week for you, I have a surprise. Oh. Um, it is not the article I thought I would be doing. Oh, okay. This article is from 
2008 spring issue of Traces. It is titled The King's Last Concert, Elvis Presley in Indianapolis. Oh, Elvis has entered the chat. Elvis has entered the chat by Rita Rose. On June 26th, 1977, 18,000 people saw Elvis Presley's Indianapolis performance at Market Square Arena. And at the time of this article, 31 years later, it is still something that people talk about. Like at every the five year mark, Rita Rose, she was a concert reviewer for the Indianapolis Star. So she saw this concert. And so five years after his death and about every five years after that, she will always get asked for concert memories. Was this concert really big in any way? Like, was it? A big deal or is it just a one of his concerts? well that's the thing it's a big deal because it was his last one. Oh, did you say that already i did and i just missed that yeah so. <laughs> <laughs> wow that's okay good. so his last concert ever was in indianapolis yeah how did i not know that i don't know i didn't know that either that needs to be like in some handbooks like you get when you live here or born here apparently this has had a lasting impact on indianapolis as this show or this article shows and so this was actually one of elvis's like third concerts in indianapolis the first one that rita had seen was in 1972 at the indiana state fairgrounds coliseum and she said that's where he was at his best he was in his powder blue jumpsuit with a swirling cape and he was doing great what year was that that was in 1972 okay two years later then in october 1974, he appeared at the Expo Center, and apparently this one was terrible. Oh, no. Just bad. He couldn't remember his lyrics. He looked overweight, bloated, and like he was hungover. And she got a lot of hate mail for that one. So she gave a bad review, and people did not like that. People did not like that. So then, in 1977, his last concert, people were like, please, please do good. We we want you to do good. He appeared in a gold and white jumpsuit and white boots, and he had so much energy, and it was a relief to all people in the audience. He gave a great performance, and that is what she said of the performance. And this article really shows the wide range of thought on Elvis's performance and his last performance. His last one? Yeah, so this this article, this article takes on not only Rita's perspective, but another reviewer's perspective, as well as fans who were in the audience that night. So I assume by different perspectives you mean that not everyone thought this performance was that great no not everyone thought this performance was was as wonderful as ever dak duncan who was also a music critic but for the indianapolis news had said that presley had given a lethargic performance and that when people are often just hawking souvenirs like if you pay 15 dollars to see elvis you should see elvis for three hours not for an hour. $15. I know. What if, is that in today money, I wonder? Cheap. Probably cheap. Could you imagine going to a concert for 15 bucks now? Yeah. Imagine seeing Adele for $15. I'd cry. I'd be at every single concert. Yeah, I would I would go to more concerts for yeah. sure. He is complaining about the ticket price, people trying to sell him souvenirs, the t- length of the concert itself. And as a result of this, he received hate mail including hate mail from his own father for months from his own father yes <gasps> that is too funny very upset about his treatment of elvis was his father at the concert i, I don't wonder i don't even think so his father's just like just, boo you suck yeah 
Be nicer to Elvis. That's too funny. Even 25 years later, this is something that they're interviewed about. And after Elvis's death, people's opinion of Duncan changed because of his review. And they were like, oh, he was doing some things and was of ill health. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe Duncan's not as bad of a guy as we thought he was. And this included fans such as Kay Lips, who organized the Taking Care of the Presley Memorial Committee, which lobbied to get a display commemorating Elvis's last concert erected at the Market Square Arena, which is no longer standing today. So people who are rude to him were now like, sorry about that. We have the benefit of knowing all the things, plus the things, right? Yeah. These people didn't. And that's okay. And Duncan says, but what he learned overall is that you don't mess with the king. No, no. (laughs) Don't do that. Or their fans and your father will. Truly. Your father, who is a fan, will come after you. Duncan says, though, overall, he enjoys the show's legacy and is honored to have seen the last show, even though he gave this negative review. There were other people who are still local to Indy who were at this concert, such as Julie Young, who is also an Indianapolis writer and author. She was only five years old when her parents took her to see this concert. Wow. It was her first concert, period. Her parents had seen him once before at the Coliseum, but she had never been to the Market Square Arena ever, which is wild. She was like, oh, I was so high up. She specifically remembers Elvis introducing his father and his girlfriend at the time. And Young had read in an interview afterwards that it was unusual for Elvis to do something like that and that she was honored to have seen it. So Elvis brought out his father and who? His girlfriend at the time, Ginger Alden. And she says that being part of the last concert is something she feels a responsibility to, much in the Mm -hmm. same way that people of the Woodstock era feel compelled to keep the spirit of peace and love alive, Mm. which... I feel is such an interesting comparison. Like, because when you think of Woodstock, you think of a lot of counterculture. And I don't think of that as much with Elvis, but I guess he, but I guess that to our modern sensibilities, he was less counterculture. But like, in the moment, moment, he was with his like dance moves and things. It was like very like new and groundbreaking. And she may also mean just the aura of his experience, of of being his fan, of being there, right? It's not just maybe the symbolic nature of the music but the vibe and she loved the concert Another fan named Nyla Johnson, who is a longtime fan, she even ran the Elvis fan club and attended five other Presley concerts before his last show. She was concerned about him after his 1974 performance and after attending the 1977 performance, predicted that he would soon die. What? Yep. She thought he looked bad enough, like that bad? Yeah, like this was unco- like this was not good. And she says, being an Elvis fan, I thought his performance was just okay, but certainly not his best. I was not happy with how he looked or how he sang, and I was worried about him at the time, and she told her friend, Nancy Randolph, we will never see him alive again. He's going to die. I just know it. And she ended up crying at the end of the concert. So people are really going back and forth with how good this concert was. Yeah, I can't decide if it was good or not. Yeah, like people were either like, it was great, or this is so rough, he's gonna die. Yeah, geez. I wonder, though, in comparison to his 74 concert. Yeah. I, it had I been mean, better than that, right? Well, that's what it's sounding like. It's sounding like it was much better than 74. It's the middle one. 72 was amazing. 74 was terrible. This and 77 was just okay. Just right. Just <laughs> right. The Goldilocks of Elvis concert. 
But people really, like, we think about concerts nowadays. Think about how you buy a concert ticket. You're at home. It's online. Kay Lips, who I mentioned earlier, she went to the Market Square Arena at 3 p.m. the day before tickets went on sale in March. And she started organizing the line and gave everyone a number and made a list of people's names. You know, like, there's an expression that, like, if Swifties ran the country, things would get done. Like, they're just, like, unstoppable people. I've heard that. That is that is Kay and and her Elvis fans. Yeah, fandoms I guess are just like unstoppable forces. Yeah, I don't know if I would. I I don't know if I would do that for anyone. Actually, that's a lie. I probably would. For a musician, no. I, I don't know. I, I who's to say? Anyway, so Lips organizes this list. She's out there for so long that police bring her coffee and donuts. Oh my gosh. And when she gets to the window, she's told that there are no more front row seats left. And she was like, that's not true, as I am the first person in line. So did she get front row seat? She did. She called the manager of the arena and made a very large stink. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Kay got what she wanted. And she got two front row tickets and others that were split up into rows four and five. So she really did it. Go go get what you want, girl. And Kay is a perfect... Um, her most vivid memory of the 1977 concert, though, was that she received two, not one, two of Presley's sweaty scarves, which she tossed into the crowd. Does the article say sweaty scarves? It does say sweaty scarves. <laughs> so she got sweaty scarves and she kept them? And she kept them, yeah. I mean, this was a common thing that he would do. Oh, this is an Elvis-ism? Yes, yes. The list goes on and on of people who love him, thought the concert was okay, thought the concert wasn't great. It seemed, though, that Elvis was a person who was behind-the-scenes loved as well, which is, from what I have understood, rare in the entertainment mean? business. What do you mean? Like, people who are just well-liked behind the scenes. Oh, as a genuine person? Yeah, as a person. Not just a celebrity? Yeah. On June 26, 2002, a granite and bronze Elvis monument was erected at the MSA site that included a time capsule to be opened 100 years from the date, and inside the capsule are fan letters from around the country, photos of fans with Elvis, a scarf Elvis gave to Kay Lips, and other items. The $10,000 tribute was paid by donations from fans. When the MSA site was developed, the display will have moved, and I'm not sure where it moved to. That's, that's something I think I'm gonna have to research. I know I'm gonna have. We're gonna have to find. If you know, leave Please a comment. Let us tell know. us. Yeah. Where is the Elvis statue? Where is Elvis? Like yeah. where's Waldo? But blingier. There you go. But yeah, that that is Elvis in Indiana. Interesting. I was hoping to get some sort of consensus. Yeah. I I am shocked that he was in Indianapolis so frequently in such a short amount of time. Yeah. From 1972 to 1977, he had been here three times. I think this story is also sweet because there's something in us as humans that our entertainers mean a lot to us. Yeah. And even, I don't know, people you've never physically or actually met but that entertain you or that you see, they, they mean something to us, don't they? Well, and I have not experienced another group of fans who have looked so deeply into what an artist is wearing how they appear and what they are looking like like 
as like the only person I feel like I can compare Elvis to in this moment what? is Taylor Swift. Yeah. She is like all encompassing. She's everywhere. And that feels like how Elvis was here. Like when Nyla Johnson was like, I could I could tell. I could tell he was gonna die because yeah. I've seen him five times and I know that's not how he looks normally. Yeah, that's not him healthy. That's a Swifty. That is a Swift. That's what I mean. These girls and men, these people could run the country. They are in tune and they're aware and they will sit on their computer for hours for tickets. They will go to Earth's end to see Taylor yeah, Swift. Yeah, I can imagine Taylor Swift fans waiting the day before oh, a concert. I could imagine them the week before. Honestly, yeah. I, to me, so, so, there's no hate to Swifties, but there is no end at which I think you will go to to see Taylor Swift. I also think, though, that this just shows how much our, like what you were saying, people love artists, but I think this shows growth in the love of our pop culture figures. Like, the lengths people are willing to go to now seems like they have grown exponentially. Do you think that it's grown exponentially, or do you just think the ways in which we're able to express our fandom, our adornment, is that a word, has changed? Like, you were saying, like, they sat outside to buy a ticket physically in person. We don't do that now. We sit on the computer for five, six, eight, ten hours to do it. That is true. Not that it's different. Yeah. My grandma was a huge Elvis fan. She loved Elvis. One of my favorite Elvis songs is Blue Christmas. I listen to it all year round because it's just such a catchy <laughs> tune. So I'm going to have to give Blue Christmas a listen. There you go. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us on this episode of Unbound. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.